0: Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is Paul Hubert, Jim Rondinelli, and J.J. Johnston from Immersion Networks. But first of all, who do you think the biggest streaming songwriters are? Well, in some cases you might not be surprised, in other cases you definitely will be. A company called Blocker looked at the charts of Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, and YouTube, and rated each song by its popularity and by the time that it spent on the chart. So they looked at each platform's flagship chart, like Spotify's Global Top 200, Apple's Global Top 100, Amazon Music's Top 200, and YouTube's Top 100 Global Weekly charts. What they found out was kind of interesting. First of all, the top 10 songwriters are Tones and I, Roddy Ricch, Phineas O'Connell, Drake, Lil Baby, Billie Eilish, Oz, Ed Sheeran, Louis Capaldi, and Pop Smoke. Tones and I is really curious, but when you look at the fact that the song racked up over 2.2 billion plays just on Spotify, while its official YouTube video has over 1.6 billion views, I find it even more curious the fact that it's not a dance song, even though it's called Dance Monkey. Now, if we look at the top 10 non-artist songwriters, here's what we find. Number one is Phineas O'Connell, who is brother and producer for Billy Heilish. Number two is Oz, 30 Rock, Louis Bell, Pooh Bear, Thomas Hull, Max Martin, kind of expect him to be there, Ross Portero, Frank Dukes, and Oscar Halter. Now, where it really gets interesting is when we go to the YouTube-only songwriter charts. The top five songwriters on YouTube last year were Bodshah, Tones and I, S. Tommen, Drake, and Tony Kakar. Now, three of those are Indian. If we look at the top five non-artist songwriters on YouTube, we find S. Tommen, Kanal Verma, Oz, Ashish Verma, and Brulio F.P. Acosta. Again, three of the top five are Indian. What this is showing us is that Indian pop music is really coming on strong even though it's kind of under the radar. When we think of Asian pop music, we naturally think of K-pop, but this is coming on strong because it's so big right now on YouTube. Now, if we take this yet another step and we look and see which streaming platforms have the greatest market share, Spotify by far is the biggest with 32%. Then we get Apple Music at 16%, Amazon at 13%, Tencent, the giant Chinese streaming service, at 13%. And then we got Google, which is basically YouTube, at 8%. What we don't see here is the fact that YouTube is coming on super strong. And the fact of the matter is, it's becoming very big with younger audiences all around the world. The thinking is that YouTube music is becoming to Gen Z what Spotify was to millennials about a half decade ago. So if you look beneath the surface... The streaming landscape is really changing, although you wouldn't know it by what you hear in the media, by what you read, but we're seeing trends that show that things could be different very soon. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my Music Mixing Primer and 101 Mixing Tricks programs that will help take your mixes to the next level. Go to Courses.com to learn more. Now, if you're a keyboard player or a producer, I'm sure you used an electronic piano patch on a synthesizer somewhere, but one of the main electronic pianos has always been the Fender Rhodes. The fact of the matter is, you can't buy a new one. They've been out of production for a while. Until now, a new English company called Rhodes Music Group Limited is going to start production again. Now, the Rhodes electric piano has a long, long history that most people are not aware of. Harold Rhodes actually made his first piano in 1942, and he called the pre-piano, and it was to accompany his teaching method for soldiers that were recovering from injuries during World War II. Now, Harold's electric piano kept on getting better and better. And in 1959, he went into a joint venture with Leo Fender. But Leo really didn't like the higher sounds of the electric piano. So he only did a 53 note model, which they called the Fender keyboard bass. And of course, that was made very famous as the low end of the Doors and all their hits. So the Fender Rhodes also had a unique look with a fiberglass top, but actually, these were leftovers from a boat manufacturer. Leo Fender was notoriously cheap, and he just wanted to save money everywhere, so he got this boat manufacturer to give him all his extras. So that's why some are black, and some are red, and some are purple, and it wasn't because people ordered them that way. It was just because that's what they had. The sustain pedal was from a Rogers hi-hat stand. Fender was bought by CBS in 1965, And it wasn't long after where the first 73 note model was actually introduced. Then along the way, there were student instructor models for Keyboard Labs. An 88 note model came out in 1981. In 1983, though, Fender was bought from CBS by a team of executives led by William Schultz, who then closed the factory in 1985 and sold the Rhodes brand to Roland in 1987. Harold Rhodes hated the Roland pianos, and he had no input on them. So in 1997, he managed to reacquire the Rhodes brand. But he was in poor health and then passed away in the year 2000. In 2007, a reformed Rhodes Music Corporation tried to introduce the reproduction of the original. Now we're going to see this brand new Rhodes company try it again. The only problem is... These are expensive to produce and expensive to sell. They're really heavy because they're about 130 pounds or so, which is pretty much impractical for touring. However, if you're a keyboard player, you know about how cool these can be, especially one that's really tweaked out. And also, if you're a keyboard player, you know that you couldn't just take a stock Rhodes piano and make it work. You needed the action tuned up a little bit. So we'll see what happens with this brand new version that's coming out. Aficionados are looking forward to it, I guarantee. My guests this week are president and founder Paul Hubert, CEO Jim Rondinelli, and chief scientist JJ Johnston from the 3D mixing platform Immersion Networks. The company's innovative MixCubed software allows anyone to upload tracks, and mix them in a three-dimensional environment. These mixes can then be appreciated without any kind of special hardware and distributed through streaming services. The credentials of my guests are indeed impressive. Paul worked alongside Steve Jobs at Apple, installing the first Macs at Prince's Paisley Park Studios and creating audio formats that liberated the potential of satellite radio. Jim has recorded and produced more than 100 album projects and received gold and platinum awards for his work with Matthew Sweet, Wilco, Weezer, and Everclear, but he has a long history in music tech with Warner Chapel Music, Slacker, and RDO, among others. JJ is an authority on human perception and audio signal processing, having worked for 25 years at Bell Labs, where he helped develop the MP3 and AAC codecs. During the interview, we spoke about the most important speaker in a multi speaker setup, the limitations of modern LP style production, developing a streaming service way before one existed commercially, how perceptual codecs were created, and much more. I spoke with the group via Zoom from their office in Redmond, Washington. I would love to actually get into it with each and every one of you, but I don't think we have the time. So let's just go back to how Immersion Network started. I think that that is a great setup for Paul and JJ.
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, so, Immersion Networks started. Uh, you know, with, I guess it's uh, a summary of both JJ and I's life work coming into building a platform. Um, around 2015, we got started on the project, um, and you know we, I, you know, we've been in this field for a long time, and uh, together we decided that it was time to build a spatial audio platform that should be maybe the last last thing we really should need, do everything that uh, um, audio, you know, uh, could capture in a certain way, distribute a certain way, and also, you know, experience it as a consumer is the best way that, that it could be intended. And uh, it's a pretty ambitious project. Uh, we, um, we got started building the team in 2015 and the facilities to do all the testing and everything. Um, but uh, again, it's you know, JJ and I had been working together for many years and really enjoyed uh, working on projects. But this was a very ambitious one.
0: Before we, we go there here, so you were working on the seeds of this prior to Immersion Networks, I take it.
1: Yeah, ultimately, I, I've been on this journey since I started in audio. Really, in in my early twenties, and uh, it's always been my dream to be able to capture something that's live, something that feels real, and you know, and distribute it all the way down to or bottle that experience and share it with fans or consumers or you know anybody that's interested in audio. And you know, it's taking a lot of time to get to where technology can meet that. And luckily, we've you know found ourselves at a really interesting window where everyone has supercomputers in their pockets. They have you know things. They have so much computation power around that we can um, you know you do do amazing amazing things with uh, very little you know interaction from other things.
2: I can put in a few words. Sure, yeah. yeah, sure. I started out. I was a kid. I mean, we're talking about labels for college doing sound for bands and stuff like that. One got my double E degree and another double E degree. And went to Bell Labs where they were just developing the whole signal processing field. And I wound up working for in acoustics research for people that were doing signal processing and acoustics and hearing research. So that's my background. Um, how I got to this point is um, up, uh, at at and I contributed a whole bunch of stuff to the MP3 standard and even more to the AAC standard. Um, then AT&T basically exploded as a company. I came out here, worked for the other Evil Empire for a few years in their audio division. Uh, went from there to a company Paul was running called Immersion. Sorry, called sorry. Right. Neural Audio. And um, after that sold, I left there and started working here. My motivation technically is that the perceptual aspects have been ignored, ignored, did I mention ignored, and then ignored some more. Um, when you have stereo, we're still using no delay pan pots, You will hear some of the people claim, if you have delay, it won't work right. Well, actually, the only way it works right is with delay. That means loudspeakers, headphones, I don't care what you're doing. If you want to get a stereo image that actually stays put in one place, you need to handle delay aspects. You also have to handle other acoustic aspects, even if you're not talking about headphones. If you're talking about headphones, you need to handle even more aspects, including basically head acoustics, as well as room acoustics, concert hall acoustics, et cetera. And none of this is all that hard to do, but it requires completely new production from the ground up. And the tool we're talking about is the tool that basically is building that from the ground up. It's not a pan pot. It's not a uh, reverb. It is a complete acoustic simulation that's integrated with head acoustics. And although that sounds incredibly complicated, once you figure out how to do it, it's pretty much a large CPU running fast. But, well, give you an idea. When I started, when I did the first perceptual codec called PXFM at Bell Labs in like 1984, um, it ran in about four times real time on the fastest m- computer available, which was called an Alliant FX80, which was 160 MIPS. Sorry, 160 megaflops, it was less than that MIPS. Um, nowadays, you know, my, I think my watch, I think my watch does that nowadays. So all of this power has not been used. And so we're using some of the computing power now to actually do things that needed to be done a long time ago, but weren't happening.
0: Now, there are other companies that do some of what you're talking about, but I take it that your approach is different.
2: Well, our, my approach is from the point of view of perception. You have to look at what you hear, say, in a concert hall or a concert or a, or a rock concert or whatever, and you have to figure out what are the, audi- the actual audible cues. That's where all the hearing comes in. And so everything is built backwards from how to get the cues into your ears. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen my old talk on perceptual audio coding. It goes back all the way to 1970, sorry, 1989. But it makes the point that a perceptual audio coder, if you measure the signal-to-noise ratio, say, of AAC, it will be worse than the actual best, high signal, the best signal-to-noise ratio you could get from a codec. But it will sound enormously better. The same, this and this because when you put the when you put the noise when you where you can't hear it and you remove things that you couldn't hear, that makes the signal to noise worse. Now, for what we're doing, we're not actually adding noise, but we're adding the actual cues that give you a sense of like distance, um, externalization, localization. Some pieces of that are pretty well known to. To my knowledge, all the tools that are out there don't integrate them properly.
0: That's what I was getting at, actually, that there are other companies that kind of sniff around the edges of this.
2: But they don't integrate them all properly into one thing. So when you get one cue that says it's from over there and another cue that says it's from over there, your brain basically goes, huh? I mean, it might even be a useful sound effect, but it's not usually what people are trying to achieve. I mean, we've seen some evidence of this use of perception all the way back with people doing delay panning with two with two tape recorders and stuff. But it's very you know then it was very hard to manage. Now you can take it. You can go onto our website, take a finger, and go. Oh, let's move it over there. Sorry, you can't see where my finger is, but you follow what I'm saying.
0: Yeah,
3: actually, that's a great. Let me just take a quick pause for a question. Bobby, have you had a chance to upload any tracks to the mix engine? Have you had a chance to play with it at all?
0: No, I haven't done that. But what I, I have done is listen to the demos, which were really impressive.
3: Can't wait for you to upload some tracks and kick the tires and play with it yourself.
1: Yeah, The challenge is you're still listening to the demos through YouTube's codec. And, you know, you're, you're losing something. But, uh, you know, we want to make sure it can make it through uh, but there's a lot of extra cues in there to make sure that it still works on even not ideal situations. But when you okay. hear it offline, you know, off the website, you're not hearing any lossy um, compression in there.
0: So it makes let, a big let,
1: difference.
3: You know, let me take it back to sort of record producer speak, right? So it, it sometimes when we we're making records, we had sort of core realities or ground rules that we would establish for making the records that, for better or for worse, sometimes we'd just have a random creative limitation that we'd instruct on something but would inform our approach. Our, ours is a little different here. We don't put creative limitations on anybody, but we had some key principles that we wanted to adhere to. We wanted to come up with a product and an output that could be experienced by anybody on the hardware that they already own, and they could also be experienced over the relatively but st- you know, crude but still present in-market codecs that are currently in use by the major media streaming services. And we've accomplished that with all of this stuff. And we're not asking you to buy hardware uh, to experience it. The biggest use case for music these days is on headphones. Our headphone experience is, you know, our a headphone experience is indistinguishable from the uh from a properly set up speaker experience when you have, you know, the emphasis on both properly set up, but most importantly, headphones weren't an afterthought. We didn't start out with 30 speakers in a room and then try to figure out what we had to do to get it down to two channels. We started with what's the real world case and, and what do we have to do to have people perceive it.
0: The big limitation with Atmos and with the other immersive systems is the fact that you need all those speakers. And even if you have the integrated ones, it's still, you need multiple speakers, which has been the downfall from, you know, the 5.1 days.
3: Oh, from Quad. Let's go back to Peter Shriver's Quad in 1996 or whatever it was, right?
2: Well, I will make a point about Quad. Quad was... Miss, was missing stuff that was discovered in 1933 which is if you're going to add a third speaker it has to be the center speaker yeah, yeah. the center speaker is absolutely the most important in a three-speaker system we proved that back at at and when I did some if you saw some stuff called perceptual sound field reconstruction if you got you can find it back on the AES website AT&T went nowhere with it but that's the story of my life but the But basically, this goes back to Fletcher and Snow, or sorry, Steinberg and Snow, and working under Fletcher in 1933. You need the center speaker. It has to do with the acoustics of the head, believe it or not. And that's one of the things that are missing. But another point I want to make is that modern production is still limited in a lot of ways by what I would call LP thinking. LPs are persnickety things to produce. There's no question about it. So what you have is you have things like mono bass. And you tend to avoid time delays because it makes it difficult to cut the record. Now, if you're building an LP, that's the way to do it because you want it to. You actually want it to work. But you don't need to do that in digital. Instead, the advantage they've taken of digital is to turn the gain up to 12. You know, we're no longer at uh, 11, we're at 12. I've got lots of statistics on modern tracks and... It's pretty breathtaking when a track has almost the same peak-to-RMS ratio as a square wave.
0: You know, it's funny. I am within walking distance of two major mastering studios, and they're my friends. And when I have time, I like to go hang out. I like mastering engineers, and I like to see what they're working on. And the material that they get in is just amazing. I mean, you know, it's basically two boards, you know, yeah, top and, bottom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and what's even worse is the fact that there's overs all over the place. And at first they were freaked out about it. And then it got to the point where it's like, well, we don't even care anymore because they don't. Nobody even mentions it. So that's where we're at. And Bobby, the
3: joke about that is, is that when you reconstruct filters as part of the transcoding process and the delivery mechanism with any streaming service, you're adding gain. So you think you have overs now. Wait till they come out of the back end of Spotify supply chain.
0: Yeah.
2: Well, and, and just to get to something else, the thing that a lot of people don't look at is inter-sample overs. And when you look at intersample overs, a friend of mine and I have tested a lot of DAX and a lot of otherwise well-known DAX, I'm not going to name any brands or anything, but a lot of others, they're otherwise very well, but just explode on inter They just do, I can only describe it as stuff. You would have to go into the chip and figure out why it did that to even explain it. But what it isn't doing is reproducing a waveform. Oh. Sometimes this will persist for five or six samples after the end of the over, too. I mean, so this is a problem. But the thing I was, the reason I was mentioning though, the inter-sample overs is that's what they used uh, digital for. They haven't used digital for doing things like reproducing bass like it actually happens in a listening room in a especially a concert hall concert halls being very wide if you think about it you have lots of modes going back and forth across guess what that's part of the whole thing this sounds like a big room i noticed if you listen to a 5.1 system somehow it always feel, feels tight yes mm, yeah that's because it's a dot one again back at at&t i had a wonderful demo of this What I did is I could play the same thing, mono, stereo, or five channel captured with that microphone we were using then. If I played it mono or stereo, it was horribly boomy. And we're talking about the, just so it's clear, we're talking about the same spectrum. We're not changing the signal here. We're just changing the number of signals. It's the number of speakers it's reproduced through. When you turn on all five, when you turn on all five channels, suddenly now the boom is around you. And you can hear the stuff in front, and it sounds like a hall.
0: Doesn't Atmos take that into consideration, though?
2: With dot four, the answer to that is complicated, but without a rendering system at the far end that I'm not aware exists, it's really hard. Okay. I mean, one of the yeah, if you're doing this with full range loudspeakers and at least five of them, you're good. But there is coherence involved between, I mean, people talk about you can't localize below 90 hertz. This is true. However, you can detect spatial effects down to 40 hertz. Mm. Okay. And that's where the problem comes in. And now a lot of these mini satellite speakers cross over to 110 hertz, which is just too high end of sentence.
0: Yeah, yeah. I know you guys have built some hardware as well. I take it it's hardware for your own internal testing, or is this something that's going to be a product?
3: So we like to talk about products as they're ready for market. And, and at any point in time, I mean, if you walk through this, there's any number of uh, experiments and designs and things that we developed here, sometimes for our own internal use with no intentions of commercializing it and sometimes is pro- you know, prototypes and market tests for the future. So what we are focusing on now is the platform that we've made for immersive audio, which is entirely cloud-based and offers some opportunities to do things in the cloud that you just can't do with any other system. For example, we suspend uh, any notion of how many cores are, <laughs> are available at any point in time. You need... Eight thousand cores at the same time for your mix, no problem. We do it.
2: Bill you maybe, but that's a different issue.
0: Yes. <laughs> well, well, let's go there for a second. So the one thing I don't get is how you're going to monetize this.
3: It's it's pretty easy. Um, so from our perspective, MixCubed is the beginning of the is the beginning of a, a platform. It's the beginning of movement. It's the beginning of a community. It's the beginning of an experience. We give people the opportunity to create fully bespoke next-generation audio experiences for an introductory price of $9.99 a month, which makes it extensible to creators of all stripes and and sizes, whether it's somebody working working on a multi-platinum release or somebody who's working on a TikTok video who wants to have something that has audio that's differentiated from the rest of the world. Now, over time, we'll be introducing additional feature sets and uh, cap- uh, capabilities that'll come with premium prices. But the back to the core aesthetic of the company, if we make a set of tools that aren't available to everybody and are consumable by everybody, we feel that we sort of missed it on our mission. Back to another point. We can deliver this even with our native codecs. We have native codecs that perform ex- beyond the capacity of anything that anybody's capable of or, or ex- anybody's experienced in market with a fraction of the footprint.
2: Just so, want to make one thing clear about our codecs. They're oriented to high quality. We do not mess with the 28 kilobit sounds horrible stuff. That's just not our
3: thing. But still we have stuff that, you know, with next gen audio experiences can still be delivered over a 3G network without too much too much what? It's not it, we we
2: we have no tr- we have no trouble delivering things. Let's just leave it at
3: that.
0: What is the ear of Sauron?
2: <laughs> I love that oh, oh, well, I'll answer it. It is a funny-looking thing built for the purpose of measuring HRTFs. Okay. That's it in a nutshell. It means that you can you don't have to sit, up, sit still for very long. You can make rapid measurements, and you can make them to, well, b- between the quietness of the room and everything else, far more accurately than we needed but it's much easier to deal with something too accurate than it is to deal with a ton of noise
0: yeah wow
2: when we were making it it was sitting across
1: the warehouse and it, there's one of the pieces looked like a giant eye on the ground and one of our guys hey you're making a big eye sauron? and someone said oh and it's more of an ear and it just kind of stuck that it was so stupid that the name stuck as we called the thing so even as you walk into the test lab, there's a giant Eye of Sauron poster as you walk into the test room. It's just, it's, you know, it's just, it's, it was fun. And it, you know. It did its job.
0: JJ, I have a question for you. I, a little off the subject uh, about Bell Labs. When I was growing up, Bell Labs was like the epitome of engineering excellence. Mm, I wouldn't argue with that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure you wouldn't. And w- what happened?
2: I'm sorry, three words, the parent company, when it was taken over by accountants who wanted to do three months, three months, three months, they couldn't show return on research. And then when research and sometimes development is not just research had the problem, came up with new things that might have been disruptive. Oh, no. Can't disrupt our basic market.
0: Mm.
3: That's that's Um, not part of our core business.
2: Yes, did you did you ever hear of A to B music? No. Do you, do you want to tell him about it, Jim?
3: Yeah. Oh, please. Uh, I, I think you're far better situated since uh, you were in the picture with the with the co- your colleagues from a, a, a to B music recently. Okay. Well. Well, a long nin- time ago, but reposted recently. Yes,
2: 1997. We had servers in the basement. People. Artists who would put up tracks and the ability to sell them for ninety-nine cents a piece to download to your computer. We had not in production, but um, but in uh, pro, you know, we had about a hundred prototypes of a player the size of a bit Bitlan- of a bit uh, of a big collider. Does this sound like a familiar service?
0: Sure does. Yeah. Wow.
2: Now, what happened is very simple. AT and T marketing decided, and I quote. No one will ever sell music over the internet.
3: Wow. Look, it's not too dissimilar to other, their other industrial peers. I mean, what happened with Kodak at the dawn of digital photography, even though they owned a lot of the IP rights around digital photography, they missed it.
0: Yeah.
2: I was on the committee. I was on before MPEG separated. I was a separate committee. I was on the committee with those guys. They were trying to kill digital photography. I mean, this, but that's what happened. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. In 2002, they said, okay, you're retired. Go away.
0: <laughs>
2: At this point, well, Lucent failed and mostly failed in 2001. There's still a little bit left. AT&T shut down 40% of research in 2002, and they're down to about 10% of what they had. And nobody does date any basic research except for data
0: mining. Wow, That's a real shame the national treasure
2: well you know ibm you know xerox park poof yeah ibm it's still there kodak poof xerox poof yeah yeah you know, and then people say well the the universities are making up for the space you know you can't do something and i know this is something that i think modern business do not understand you can't necessarily do something in four years
0: mm, okay
2: you know, you do need people. I mean, we've used up all of our basic research effectively in the US, and now the basic research, you know, it's like eating your seed corn. Yes, that's a sore point. Sorry. Mm. Yeah, I'm a researcher. I mean, when the reason that Codex, that Perceptual Codex came about is because I needed to write a really complicated test program for a computer. And I said, this might work.
0: I've never heard that. that that's fantastic.
2: That's how PXFM came into existence.
0: All right, let's get back to immersion for a second. Speaking of long-term, so you started in 2015 and there's only something coming to market now. So that's a long run up there. You're obviously well-funded.
3: Yeah, we wanted to get things right before we put anything in market. And also it was this, the philosophy of places like a functioning Bell Labs that informed the way that we and our very patient investors configured the company at launch. But, you know, we identified to the pool of investors who did the initial backing and we have brought in subsequent investors since that this is a long process and that we're in the process of delivering a functioning platform that has a lot, a lot of other points that we're not going to speak about today, but that literally covers everything from create, capture, uh, convert, and deliver and play back audio at, at all points in between. So we're fortunate in that we're gifted with some investors who got it, who understood that audio had been the subject of chronic underinvestment uh, over the last two, three decades, and saw an opportunity for change.
2: I was just going to say that my experience has always been as audio comes last until you don't have any.
3: It's you guys, you were going with, you've been around a long time. How come we're just hearing about you now? And the answer is simple because we have patient investors who knew that for us to do what we needed to do, we needed to have things right and sounding and, you know, researched and developed first rather than developing a half ass version of it in a mobile app and spitting it out and trying to find a business of it. It's kind of almost the inverse of the lean startup mentality. That a lot of companies use today, and 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 back to just think about this. Since the dawn of the iPhone, we've gone through 262, 263, 264. We've gone from 525 lines to 1080p to 4K to now heading towards 8K. And with audio, well, we have Wave, we have AAC. Thanks to JJ, we have the MP3 file. But you know, we haven't seen kind of investment in audio in most of the companies, the other legacy companies, and this is where we found a real opportunity to play in the marketplace, most of the audio research companies are more like uh, pharma companies. They're more in a, interested in extending the life of their IP than actually doing any real research and development.
0: It seems like you're focusing on headphones, earpieces, whatever the case, rather than than speakers, although I know that's not entirely the case. But it brings up a point when it comes to research as well. You know, loudspeakers are the same as they've been for more than 100 years. And there hasn't been a real revolution there. There's been evolution, but there hasn't been a change.
2: They're the worst part of the system.
0: Yeah. And I always thought that we weren't going to have true immersive audio until that changed, until we got something new, a new technology that changed all that.
2: I will sort of take that, but we have to wait for response from the patent office. Okay, and I've said, I mean, there is some stuff out there that I talked about direct versus indirect radiation. That's one of the things that's missing, pretty much in all of the concept of loudspeaker systems. You know, you have a things like Floyd Till has written a lot about radiation patterns and so on. But the question is, is what does a loudspeaker looks like? It generally looks like a point source, or sometimes a dipole. If you're talking about a magnet it's a dipole, but that's not what comes actually to your head from a listening area. And more than that, I'm not really willing to say right now, yeah, okay. I'm sorry.
3: But but I tell you, Bobby, this is kind of, kind of like one of those things where someday we'll find a way to get you up here so you can experience some stuff. And I will just tell you that every day you walk around this building, there's another OMG moment! I can't. What the hell is that? And they're lurking all through here.
2: Not all good, but such life.
3: <laughs> yeah, there's that. Are, are you at liberty
0: to say how big your team is?
3: I will say that we are relatively small and compact. We're fewer than twenty-five.
0: And it's all research for the most part.
3: Research, coding, and a small business layer. So separating research from coding, right? So let me draw the distinction. Researchers, the people actually doing the science at, in creating the core inventions, and coders, the people turning it into executable applica- applica- uh, applications and computer code. One interesting thing is that we found that coders that had experience, and Paul can speak to this probably better than me coders that had experience in the video gaming industry tended to be more malleable than engineers who had come out of just audio processing because we were working with things on an order of magnitude beyond what any of the audio people had ever experienced or, or encountered.
1: Yes, Without, The, the part, math is very
2: different, right? You
1: know, the you math, think,
3: The um, math is
2: different than video, but the video people are willing to digest it I won't name names or anything, but my experience in some previous locations has been questions like, uh, but that's not how we did it last week. Like, yeah, I know that.
3: <laughs> There's a lot of the did you and I've
1: had a had a it. long history <laughs> of trying to find programmers that get, you know, how how the deep math you really need to understand perceptual side of this stuff and Luckily, we've, you know, we've built a, a great core, and our first hire, our CTO, came from a video game background. And his speed in which he got the concepts, we just had to change some of the definitions. And then he was able to, you know, oh, I've been doing it this way. You, we really just had to teach him a different vocabulary, but he's already had been doing a bunch of things very similar in, in three-dimensional video Um, related stuff so we were able to build a team around that key insight very early so that's been very helpful
0: same thing though because if he's working in three-dimensional video you're talking about multi-dimensional audio conceptually it'd be the same
2: that's actually a very good point when i say r theta phi, they actually nod
0: you guys make me excited for the audio industry and that hasn't happened in a long time because like i say Everything just seems like it's the same, as you mentioned, the same as it's always been done, only maybe a tad better. And after a while, it's so boring. And it gives me hope that there's new things to look forward to.
3: Uh, And uh, quoting the words of my brother who's been in the MI business for 45 years same dog in a new
0: dress. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. This has been great. Is there anything I didn't ask you that you think uh, is important?
3: You haven't asked us for your login for MixCubed, which Paul will send you. No, I I think I have one, actually.
0: Yeah. I just have not taken advantage of it. I was early in on it.
3: I think you'll find it really illustrating when you play with this, and I'm going to invite you to kick the tires, hit us with questions, and then come back in about two more weeks for another release.
0: Okay, you're on. You're on to be good. Okay, my last question and this is my standard question to everybody, and if anyone is capable of answering this with some acuity and clarity, it's you guys. What's the best piece of business advice that you either learned along the way, or maybe somebody imparted to you?
3: Paul J. J. First, I'll take last. Uh, I, I think that uh, you know,
1: stick with your gut and persistence has always been, you know, the the things that I've been taught early on—that trust your instinct if you're gonna and you know build what you really want to build. I mean that's the you know don't build what you think people want, build what you know you think they need. I think that's a, that's a, a key thing is not to try and you know modify something else. You you know build something that um, hasn't been done. And question everything is really the, you know, we it, fundamentally, we don't assume anything is correct. You know, is this filter correct? Is this, you know, uh, so many of those things were, you know, a lesson in, you know, if something's wrong in a system, try and find out where it's coming from, because you shouldn't accept that there's something, well, that's just how it is. Mm. I think that's uh, that should be our mantra. I just throw
3: in the mention that Paul is the one of the three of us who worked direct, who was hired directly by Steve Jobs as a teenager, which is uh, an interesting story for a follow up later, Bobby. No kidding. Very Jobsian sort of Paul's very Jobsian take has has really uh, instructed the culture of this place.
1: Uh, He was an incredible person to work with, and you know. Many lessons from him, I would suppose. Yeah,
3: JJ, did you uh, take a shot at that answer?
2: I I gave it the ten foot pole, but uh, <laughs> my uh, my advice to people who have a business and want to keep it going is don't fear disruption. Somebody's going to do it, and you know, and trying to uh, concentrate on their product for the last twenty years. I mean, unless it's you know something basic like. Creating lumber, you're probably not going to survive. So don't stay, don't, don't, you know, you, yes, you have to support your core business, but you always need to find new ones.
0: Jim,
3: it's listen. Listen before responding. Take a pause and give it a thought.
2: You brought up one other thing, if I can mention it. Um, you will hear various people, especially some of the established people, say, oh, I, I tried their stuff and it doesn't do XX. And for a variety of XX, that correspond to, quote, the way you're supposed to do everything. And there's a reason for that, because it really isn't the way you're supposed to do everything. You will hear that.
0: You can find out more about Immersion Networks and get a free 30-day trial subscription at Immersion.net. That's Immersion.net. Thanks for listening and being in my Inner Circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to BobbyoinnerCircle.com, or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean